morning we're going to be starting our series out of the book of Mark, and it's called Getting to Know Jesus. And I, hopefully I'm going to try and do it in about six months, all right? And uh, the reason why I, I'd like to do um, this study with you, and I really would encourage you in your own devotions just to start reading the book of Mark. It's only 16 chapters. It's very easy. The language is simple, and you'll get to... Uh, um, see in a very short space of time how encouraging it is just to see Mark describe something of the life of Jesus. And we're doing this for a reason, because we want this church increasingly to become an outward-focused missional community that's reaching out into every area that uh, we come from. And um, for those of you that are visiting, <clears throat> we've traditionally, this church, is, was start, this church was started in Watford, and then we moved five years ago here because God gave us this facility. But we've always had people from many different areas. So we have people from Hemel Hempstead. We have people from Watford. We have people from Welling Garden City. We have people from Hatfield. We have people even from as far as um, Potter's Bar that come and are part of this church, Harpenden. And so for me, it's thrilling to see that God wants us to really reach out into our community wherever we are. And I was talking with someone yesterday. We are just talking about a, a Jason and, and Ursula's home group that meets in uh, Berkhamsted. They come from Berkhamsted. And only a few of the people in their home group come to this church. And for me, for me, that's an incredibly exciting thing because the church is called to be a blessing to the whole community. The church is, if we are, if we are going to be effective as a church, the health of St. Albans is our primary concern. Are you with me? Not just the health of this local community. Not just the health of our church, not just the health of our tribe, if we belong to a group or a network of churches. The, the, the primary call of the church is to be a blessing to the cities, the communities in which the church finds itself. And so I want to encourage you, wherever you live, that your primary mission field is your neighbors, your friends, and your family. And I want to say it's quite all right with me that if they never come to this church, but they get to know Jesus, that is a very, very wonderful thing. And so, of course, we want this church community to grow, but we want the church, you, to be a blessing wherever you are. We want you to be living and preaching the gospel, whether you live in Harpenden or Welling Garden City or St. Albans or Watford, wherever you live. Amen? And that's why we're doing this series of getting to know Jesus. Uh, because as we look at the Gospels, we get a picture of who Jesus is, what he's like, and what we want to communicate as we preach the Gospel. Are you with me? So I'd just like to recap for five minutes what I preached last week, because a number of you weren't here. And it, and it will just be a five-minute recap, and if you can turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. I said to you last week that everything that flows out of our lives, all ministry that flows out of our lives, can only come from a place of the personal revelation of the gospel in our own lives. We can only share what we know of Jesus and what he's done for us. And so we have been taking time over the last couple of years to try and help all of us to understand this salvation that we have, this great salvation, that we, the little tagline is, we all want to be rooted in Christ. We want to know Jesus. We want to know the, 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 the freedom that he's brought us all into. And we, want, we want to know that because it's out of that place that we can minister to other people. Isn't that true? So it's out of the freedom. The scripture says out of the fullness of Christ that we have received, we can share him with others. 
All right? And so that's why we've taken time to say, okay, well, how do we understand the gospel? What does salvation mean? What does it mean to be born again? What about the finished work of the cross? What does all that stuff mean so that the Holy Spirit can bring revelation to us and we, out of that revelation we can share with others? All right? So this personal theology, all that you do in your life must flow out of your personal theology, your personal understanding, revelation, whatever terminology you want to use, of who Jesus is. That's where it all ends and starts, all right? Secondly, I said then that each church has a theological vision. In other words, every local church must carefully consider the city that they are living in, the kind of people they are trying to reach, and their personal understanding of the gospel must begin to marry with that so we can be effective in how we preach and live and teach and minister. Are you with me? So the most effective churches are those kind of churches that have taken time to say, okay, what kind of people live in St. Albans? What does that mean in terms of how we preach, lead worship, how we reach into the community? What does that mean? What does that look like? And so I, I said to you, secondly, that we need to consider as a community as we go forward this year, what, who are we trying to reach? And, and that's going to determine largely every ministry that flows out of the local church, isn't it? And then we don't give ourselves to things just for the sake of doing it. We give ourselves to things because that's what the community needs. Those three things, all right? And so I said to you, just recap. One, the gospel is good news. It's not good advice. It's good news, all right? We herald the gospel. It's a message that we proclaim. Secondly, I said, it's good news that we have been rescued. What have we been rescued from? We've been rescued from the wrath and the anger of God, and we had a look at what that means, what the Bible has to say about that. Thirdly, I said specifically, it's the good news about what Jesus has done from us, for us. The good news centers on a person. The gospel centers on the person of Jesus. Then the fourth thing I said is, the good news of the gospel is not just about the results of the gospel. What I meant by that is, we're not just trying to rehabilitate the world. <laughs> the world needs to be saved. This world needs to be rescued. But it's not just about the rehabilitation program. It's primarily the message, the good news of Jesus, that produces the good things. Yeah? And we had a look at Martin Luther, who said, we are saved by faith alone, but not by faith that remains alone. In other words, your salvation, believing on Jesus, inevitably results in a life that is transformed. And because your life is transformed, everything else changes. And so you start to see sexuality differently. You start to see your culture differently. You start to see race differently. You start to see class differently. Everything changes. The gospel changes everything. And I said to you, we never move on from the gospel, you know. I've heard that so many times before. We want to get to the really deep stuff, you know. Teach us the really deep stuff. Now, the gospel is the really deep stuff. The gospel is the only stuff. The gospel is continually transforming us. Why? Because the gospel is Jesus, and Jesus is transforming us from one degree of glory to another till we become like him in every way. Now, either that happens and it's completed that Jesus comes back, <laughs> or you die and you go and be with him and then it's completed. All right, so that's a summary of what I spoke to you last week. 
And with that in mind, I said, because we're trying to say, let's be a missional community, let every area of the life of the church become more missional, uh, one more thing I want to say. I don't want to get hung up anymore about what churches should look like and how they should be led and what they should be doing. Okay? This is what we are holding to, the gospel. I, I would be thrilled to see a number of churches planted, and if one church wants to meet in a pub, and they want to do worship differently, and they want their leadership team to look different, that's okay with me. Hallelujah. Go for it. Do it. Let the gospel be the thing that motivates you, encourages you, and get on with it, and preach the good news. I want to see many churches planted out of this one, and they don't have to look like this one. They don't have to lead worship like we lead worship. They don't have to preach like we preach, as long as they're preaching the gospel. Are you with me? That's the thing. That's what I'm trying to motivate you with and encourage you with this morning. So, with that in mind, I'd like to speak to you as the first session out of getting this series called Getting to Know Jesus. I've called this the beginning of the gospel. The beginning of the gospel. And uh, really, if you consider the four gospels together... I am quite excited this morning, all right? So I'll breathe deeply. The four Gospels are all portraits of Jesus. They're portraits. We, we went to, with uh, our kids to the National Portrait Gallery last uh, Saturday. Part of what Jesse's doing is he's studying fine artists, one of his GCSEs. And there's a portrait um, competition that happens every year that's sponsored by BP. And you see these amazing portraits that people paint, and they're incredible. But the portrait is a picture of the person, isn't it? You get to know something of the person by looking at the picture. But to get to know the, the person, you have to do more than just look at the picture. Isn't that right? And so in a sense, the Gospels are all portraits. They paint a picture of, what, how, of, of who Jesus is and what he's like. But we still have to get to know him by the Holy Spirit, all right? But we can still get, we get a great clue of, of, of who Jesus is and what he's like by reading the Gospels. And so the Gospels are called, the four Gospels are called the Synoptic Gospels. And that, that comes from a Greek word which means to see together. And so it's like Matthew, Mark, and Luke are put together and they're in parallel. And by looking at all of them, you get an overall picture. You get a synopsis of who Jesus is and what he did and how he ministered. That's why they're called the synoptic gospels. There's a common uh, material in them. But it is possible to argue, and this is what I'm saying to you this morning, that Mark is possibly the greatest gospel. It's the most important. Why? Because it was the earliest, it is the earliest gospel that we have. It's the, it's the earliest account of the life of Jesus that's come down to us. And when you, when you see the, the gospels together, and you read the gospels simply as stories, it's amazing how similar they are. Have you ever noticed that, that there's great similarity between the gospels? For example, if you were to pick the feeding of the 5,000, do you know that story about the feeding of the 5,000? You find it in Mark 6, Matthew 14, and Luke 9. In the, in the account of that story, it's told in ex almost exactly the same way and exactly the same words. Go and read it for yourself this, this week. For example, also the healing of the paralytic. Remember the story of that, the healing of the paralytic? Mark chapter 2, Matthew 9, and Luke 5. And there are a number of other stories that are recorded in the three Gospels in almost exactly the same uh, language and vocabulary as each other. Now that's very interesting. And there are other, other examples of that. And because of that, we're forced into making one of two conclusions. 
Out of the three Gospels, John is another case I won't speak about now, but the three Gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John, either they were using a common source, all three of them were using one common source, or two of the Gospels are based on another. And I believe Matthew and Luke were based on Mark. And this is why I say, here's a little bit of a, a, a detective thing, all right? If you have a look at uh, the sections found in the Gospel of Mark, Mark could be divided into 105 sections, little sections. Of those, 93 occur in Matthew and 81 in Luke. If you were to consider how many verses there are in Mark, Mark has 661 verses, Matthew 1,068, Luke 1,149. Of the 661 verses used in Matthew, um, 661 verses of Mark, Matthew uses 606 identical verses. Of the verses used by Luke, he uses 320 exactly the same as the book of Mark. And as a result of those things, if you put all those things together, there are only 24 verses in Luke and Matthew that are not from Mark. It's incredible. So what I'm saying to you is that both Matthew and Luke, they follow the order of Mark's gospel. They are based on Mark's gospel. Why? Because Mark's gospel was the basis for those other two Gospels. And so I find it incredibly exciting to think that when we are reading Mark's Gospel, we are actually reading the earliest account of what Jesus did and how he ministered and how he lived. It's very encouraging. So, having said that, I just want to cover one other introductory point. Who was Mark? Who was Mark? And what do we know about him? Well, actually, we know quite a lot about Mark especially out of the book of Acts. Mark was the son of a well-to-do widow. It's amazing how many well-to-do widows there are in, in the Bible. She was a, the, Mark's mum was a well-to-do widow, and if you know the story of um, Acts chapter 12, it says in Acts chapter 12 that persecution broke out against the church, and uh, James was killed um, by, by the Romans, and Peter was arrested, and he was thrown in jail. And when he was thrown in jail, Acts chapter 12, there's this supernatural thing that happens, an angel appears to him, releases him from prison, and he's kind of standing there wondering what happened, and suddenly he realizes that he's free, and it says in verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name is also Mark, and there were many gathered there together who were praying. And so there we have the first indication of who John Mark was. His mum had a home used to entertain the early church and to have life group. The first life group in Jerusalem was in John Mark's home. And so he grew up in this home of Christian community. With, he knew the apostle Peter personally, and Peter um, came into his house, and he must have known other people that had, had, uh, had seen Jesus. And, and so he grew up in this amazing community, this early church community, this home where um, Christians were coming in and out of his home. We know, too, that he was the cousin of Barnabas, Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Barnabas who traveled with Paul. Remember, if you read Acts 13, the next chapter, there's a church in Antioch, and the church in Antioch says, 
what are Paul and uh, Barnabas called to do? Okay, they called to go and preach the gospel, so they laid their hands upon them, they sent them out. And Paul and Barnabas went on their first missionary journey, and I've just come back from the Mediterranean, and you can trace on a, on a, a map very simply where they traveled and how they went around the Mediterranean basin. And they took with them as their personal attendant, they took with them as their scribe, a young man called John Mark, who wrote this gospel. And so we have John Mark, who knows Peter. He travels with Paul and Barnabas, and it says in Acts 13, verse 13, Paul and Barnabas returned from Jerusalem, and when they had completed their service, they brought with them John, whose other name was Mark. So we know we're speaking about the right person. It doesn't seem to have been a happy journey for Mark, however, because when they reached this place called Pergia, which is uh, on the coast, Paul, for some reason, wanted to go inland to the plateau, and he wanted to minister there, but Mark, for some reason, leaves home. Leaves, uh, leaves them. And so there have been all these suggestions in terms of why did, why did Mark leave them? Because uh, it's quite uh, described in quite uh, uh, vociferous language, uh, which I'll show you now. Well, there's been a number of suggestions. One, they said, well, perhaps Mark, because he was a young man, he was scared, and uh, that road that Paul wanted to follow was one of the most um, uh, dangerous roads in the ancient world, full of bandits that robbed people, etc. So perhaps he was just nervous. Uh, to go with them. Other people have said, well, perhaps um, his nose was put out of joint because Paul and Barnabas were traveling together and it became obvious that Paul was kind of coordinating and leading that journey and perhaps he wanted his uncle to lead the journey and so he thought, well, I'm, I'm out of here. I don't like the way this is turning out. I don't like the fact that this guy's leading, so I'm leaving. And there's an interesting perspective put forward by a guy called John Christensen, who was a fourth century writer. And he was one of the early church fathers. And he simply says that he believes John Mark went home because he was missing his mother. He was homesick. He was a young man. He was missing mum. So he thought, no, this is too hard. I'm going back to mum. I'm going back to Jerusalem to nice cooking and having my bed made and all those kind of things that teenage boys like. So I don't know what the truth is. I'm just putting some things to you. But the point is that when Paul and Barnabas wanted to go on their second missionary journey... Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with him again, and Paul would have nothing to do with this. And so you read in Acts 15.37, it says, Barnabas wanted to take John called Mark, but Paul said not to take him with them. He who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And so there was a sharp disagreement, so they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. So basically, these Christian brothers fight. That's it. They have a sharp disagreement, and the split is so serious that actually we don't really hear much about Barnabas anymore after that, that, that uh, point in the Scripture. We don't know much about what he did. And church tradition says that actually John Mark went down to Egypt and started a church in Alexandra, the great city of Ale- ancient city of Alexandra. We don't know that that's true, but that's what church tradition says. But when we, need, when, when we next read about Mark, it's actually in the most wonderful and surprising way. Because towards the end of his life, Paul is in, in jail in Rome, and he starts writing letters to the church. And so he writes letters to the Colossians, and he writes letters to uh, Philemon and others from his cell in, in prison. And if you read Colossians 4.10, this is what Paul says. 
Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Isn't that amazing? Right at the end of his life, Paul and Mark have somehow reconciled, and now when he's coming to write his final um, letters to the church before, he got, before he's killed, John Mark is with him in prison. Isn't that amazing? John Mark is with him in prison, and he writes also in his letter to Philemon, he, he calls Paul, uh, Paul calls Mark, one of my fellow workers, verse 24. Also, when he, he writes um, to, to, Timothy, to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4.11, just before his death, he says this, Luke alone is with me, in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 11, Luke alone is with me, get John Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me in my ministry. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> These guys that fought and went off and did their own thing, at the end, the guy that wants, Paul wants to be with him because he's useful to him is John Mark, this guy that wrote this wonderful gospel. I just find these things fascinating, encouraging, and very refreshing. So the third thing I'd just like to look at this morning is, well, you know, the, the, the accuracy of any story is only as good as its information. Would you agree? You can only say you've got a good, accurate story if your information is correct. So we must ask this question, where did Mark get his information from about Jesus? He wasn't one of the original apostles. So where did he get his information from? Well, we've already seen that his home was a center for Christians, and so he would have heard inevitably, he would have heard stories about Jesus there. But from the way that Mark is written, when you read it, it's much more detailed than that. It's like Mark was really there, because there are eyewitness details in the Gospel of Mark that can only have been uh, witnessed, all right? So it's got to be something else. And um, towards the end of the second century, now this is only 150 years later, so it's like us looking back to the late 1800s. That's, that's what it's like. It's, it's a, we can get a very accurate picture of the 1800s from our perspective now. Would you agree? And at the end of the second century, there's a guy called Papias who wrote down what he could remember about the early church and what the church looked like and who was doing what. It's kind of like a historical document for us. And he says, he says that the Gospel of Mark is nothing more than the preaching record of Peter the Apostle. That's what Pathia says to us. He says John's Gospel, the basis for John's Gospel, is the preaching record of Peter. And I'm quoting from him now. Uh, sorry? Mark's Gospel. Yes, what did I say? Sorry, Mark's Gospel. Because 1 Peter 5.13, Peter writes and he says, My son Mark. He had a very close relationship with John Mark. And this is what Papias says. He says, Mark was Peter's interpreter and wrote down accurately, though not in order, all that he recollected of what Jesus had said or done. For he was not a hearer of the Lord, a hearer of the Lord or a follower of, of his. He followed Peter, as I have said. And Peter adapted his instructions to practical needs without any attempt to give the Lord's words systematically. So Mark was not wrong in writing down some things in this way from memory, for his one concern was neither to omit or to falsify anything that he had heard. So there you have a second century witness who's saying, actually, Mark's gospel is a preaching record of Peter, and that's what Mark wrote down, as accurately as he could remember. Everything that Peter preached and said, he wrote it down. It's amazing. 
So we can take it then that what we have in Mark's gospel is the preaching material of Peter, and that's why it's supremely important. First, it's the earliest of all the gospels, and secondly, it embodies everything that the apostle Peter preached and taught to the early church. And so it is the earliest thing that we will ever have as an eyewitness of account of what Jesus taught and how he ministered through the eyes of the Apostle Peter recorded by Mark. Isn't that amazing? And so I want to just give you some characteristics. As you study Mark's gospel, and I really trust that you will, it's, uh, that you'll, this month and the months ahead, that you'll read Mark's gospel over and over and over, and with this thing, with this prayer in your heart, Jesus, I want to get to know you better. I want to understand you. I want to understand how you, how you ministered, what moved you. And the, these are the characteristics that I want you to look for as you read Mark's gospel as we go forward together. First, I've said it already, it's the nearest thing that we get to, as a portrait of Jesus. And, and underlying all of this, it's a loving portrait. It's a vivid portrait. Above all things, Mark's account of, Je- of Jesus' life is real. It's incredibly down-to-earth and real in a way that the other Gospels aren't. Second thing I'd like you to look for is this, that Mark's Gospel never forgets the divine side of Jesus. It begins with this incredible statement that I want to look at this morning. This is the beginning of the Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Yeah? Mark never forgets that. That's his revelation right at the beginning. He leaves us in no doubt to what he believes Jesus to be. Jesus is the Son of God. This is his gospel. This is his message. And he writes down and he focuses on the impact that this message had on everyone who heard it and everyone who believed it. And so there's always the sense of awe. When you read Mark's gospel, look for these phrases. They were astounded by his teaching. They were in awe. They were amazed. See how many times those phrases are repeated as you read the gospel. They occur over and over. Even, he focuses on the outward uh, effect of Jesus' message, even with the disciples. When you read chapter 441, after he had stilled the storm, it says this of the disciples, they were filled with great awe, and they said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Chapter 6, verse 51, speaking of the disciples, they were utterly astonished. That's the kind of language, the simple language that Mark uses. Not just describing the astonishment of those that heard the message, but the close, one, the close connections of Jesus, the disciples. They were amazed. They were astounded. There's the sense always that Mark sees Jesus not just one of us, but this God with us who's moving people always to awe and amazement and wonder at what he was doing. I want to ask you, when's the last time you were moved to awe and wonder and amazement at what God is doing in your life? And we heard those testimonies this morning, wonderful testimonies. There's a sense of Mark, he focuses on the heart of people and, and a simple uh, response to Jesus in the most wonderful way. Okay, so it's a, it's a portrait of Jesus. He never forgets the divine side of Jesus. But thirdly, when you read Mark, look at this. Look for this. He paints an incredibly human picture of Jesus. Incredibly human. There's no other gospel that describes the emotions that Jesus felt like Mark describes the emotions that Jesus felt in such great detail. Uh, chapter 8, verse 12 he sighed deeply in the Spirit and said, referring to Jesus. Chapter 6, verse 34, he was moved with compassion. 
chapter 6, verse 6. Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. Chapter 3, verse 5, 8, verse 32, and chapter 10, verse 14. He was moved to righteous anger. Jesus got angry. And only Mark's the only one that paints these kind of pictures for us. And I love this one. Uh, chapter 10, verse 21. You know the story of the rich, rich young ruler that came to Jesus and said, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, sell all your possessions and follow me. And all the Gospels record that. And the only, one that said, the only one that says these words is Mark. He says, he looked at the rich young ruler and he loved him. Only Gospel that says that. And he loved him. There's no judgment in Jesus' heart when he said those words. He loved him. He, he saw what this young man needed. He loved him, and yet he spoke the truth to him. Are you with me? Uh, what about um, chapter 6, verse 31? Jesus grew tired and wanted to rest. Only Mark's gospel says things like that. And so Mark paints a very human picture of Jesus who was very much like us. Got angry, grew tired, uh, Felt compassion, felt love, felt all these things. Jesus felt them too. And then I want to say, I've mentioned it already, Mark's gospel has the details of an eyewitness. It's full of eyewitness details. For example, both Matthew and Mark tell the story of Jesus taking the little child. Remember the little child? And he sets the child down in the midst of them, it says. And he says, um, he says to the, all the disciples, Truly I say to you, unless... You become like one of these, one of these little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. All the Gospels tell that story. Look, look how Mark puts it. Mark puts it this way. He says, he took the little child and put him in the midst of them, and taking the child into his arms, he said. Isn't that beautiful? Mark describes Jesus in a way that the other Gospels don't. There's, he's always look, pointing us to the compassion of Jesus, and as he includes these little phrases, the whole thing comes alive. It doesn't paint a different picture in your mind. Jesus taking this little child into his arms and holding him and saying, unless you become like this child, you won't see the kingdom of heaven. It's a lovely picture. And actually, if you look further in chapter 10, verse 16, only Mark, when he's rebuking the disciples, only Mark says this, he took the, children into, he took the child into his arms and blessed them, laying his hands upon them. Only Mark says that. It's always pointing us to the compassion and the tenderness of Jesus. As they're walking into Jerusalem in the final days before Jesus is killed and murdered, only Mark says this, Jesus was walking ahead of them by himself. You get instantly a picture of the loneliness of Jesus, knowing that he was going to something that no one else could do for him, that God had called him to do. And so even uh, the, the, the story of the stilling of the storm, you know, that uh, there's one little sentence that none of the other Gospels have, it says, uh, Mark says in chapter 4, verse 38, he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. All the other Gospels just say, he was asleep. Mark says, no, he was asleep, and he, put, he, says, he was asleep on the cushion. So these are eyewitness details. You don't know that kind of stuff unless you were there. And why can't put Mark write like he was there? Because he's recording what Peter remembers. And so he was recording this eyewitness account that Peter had. And lastly, Mark his language is simple, his language is real, and that comes out in how this gospel is um, written. If you look, uh, none of us are Greek scholars, I understand that, but if you look at the, uh, the original Greek version of the New Testament, Mark writes incredibly simply. He writes like a child. 
and I'm not saying that in a, a disparaging way, he writes incredibly simply. It's not the language of Paul who wrote Romans, for example. It's not complicated. It's not polished. It's very, very simple language. And so in Mark's writing style, he simply connects a whole lot of sentences with and, like a child was t- is telling a story. Jesus did this, and he did that, and we went there, then we went there. There's like this, um, this, um, this tempo to his language that is incredibly simple, and it's just connecting things one to the other. He's just telling a story in the most simple way that he can. And so in the English, when you read the, the Mark's Gospel, look for words like immediately, straight away, at once. It's the same thing. It's, it's Mark connecting all these little events and just putting them in a chronological order and saying it happened like this and then and that and that and that. It is a tempo. It's like he can't get the story out quickly enough. That's how he writes. And he goes from one thing to another. And secondly, he uses, he writes in the present tense about things that happened in the past. We don't speak like that in English because it's clumsy. But the Greek, those tenses are in the Greek. So, for example, uh, chapter 2, verse 17, the Greek says, When Jesus heard this, he says to them, present tense, he says to them, those who are strong do not need a doctor, but those who are ill. Or, for example, in chapter 11, verse 1, And when they came near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, to the Mount of Olives, he sends two disciples and says to them, It's like Mark is right there. We don't speak like that in English because it's clumsy. But generally, he records it like that in the Greek. And for me, it it shows once again how vivid, how real this situation is to Mark. It's it's as if he is really there watching it with his very own eyes, what, what Jesus is doing. What about Mark being the only one that uses in the Gospels, the Aramaic. The Aramaic was the, the language of the common people. It wasn't high Greek. It wasn't, it wasn't um, uh, fancy language. It was the language of the marketplace, the common people, the Aramaic. And, and Mark is the only one that uses that in the Gospels. And so, for example, when uh, Jairus' daughter is, is um, raised from the dead, what does he say? Mark records, Talati kumi. It means, girl, get up. Five, chapter 5, verse 14. Or to the deaf man who had that speech impediment, he says, Ipafata, which means be open. Mark's the only one who records this kind of language. Or what about um, in the garden? Everyone loves to use this word. Uh, Abba, Father. Mark's the only one that records it. Or what about uh, in um, chapter 15, verse 34, as he's being crucified? He says, Elioi, Elio, Lema Sabachthani, which is the Aramaic, which just means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I say to you, I'm convinced, it's almost it's Peter is trying to get us to hear the voice of Jesus. That's what it feels like to me. He's trying to get us to hear what Jesus' words sounded like. And so he passes that on to Mark, who writes it down. This is an incredible account. It is the essential gospel. I want to encourage you, <laughs> read it, study it, pray over it with loving care because this is the closest account that you're going to get to the life of Jesus, the gospel of Mark. So why should we study it? Well, for all of the reasons that I've tried to um, paint in the last 20 minutes or whatever it is, but I want to say there's, there's another reason which for me is the most important thing that Mark, Mark is trying to say to you and trying to say to me as the readers of this gospel. And um, it's about getting to know Jesus. And it is made clear. Can you turn with me now to chapter 1? And we're going to read uh, the first portion of chapter 1. 
and I'm going to focus on the first eight verses, but in passing. I'm just going to make a couple of, of comments. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Are you still with me? It says, um, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it's written in Isaiah, the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Here is the purpose of Mark writing this gospel. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There it is. That's the underlying purpose. He's saying to us, something is being birthed that I am writing down for you, that you can read and get to know. And I said to you last week, the word gospel has its connotation, in its connotation, like a sky headline, breaking news, alright? It has that connotation. And here, in the ancient world, the word gospel was used in a myriad of ways. For example, I didn't know this, I read it this week. When Emperor Augustine, when, when, he was, when they knew he was going to be born, they said, they announced it, and they said, this is the gospel. Emperor Augustine is going to be born. What, what, what were they meaning by the word gospel? They were describing something that they thought was going to change history. A world-changing event. Augustine. Uh, Augustus being born. And so, Mark is using the word gospel in that same sense. He's writing down a new thing. He's writing down the story of Jesus. But he's also recording an event which centers on the life of Jesus that will change history forever. And so that's what he's saying. He's saying that's why he calls it gospel. And the center of this event is Jesus. And what I love about the portion we've just read, and I want to make a couple of comments. He makes this bold statement of faith. This is the beginning of the gospel. And immediately he connects it to everything that, Jesus is, uh, everything that God has been doing in the world for thousands of years. He, the very next sentence, he goes back to Isaiah in the Old Testament. And he connects this gospel with what Isaiah had prophesied. And he places it in history. And he says, this is part of what God has been doing for thousands of years. This is part of his story of, of redemption. And so he says in verse 2 and verse 3, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way. And so he points us back to Isaiah and says, Isaiah prophesied of the coming Messiah, and then he connects that immediately, again, immediately to John the Baptizer. And he says, what you're seeing right now with John the Baptizer, he's the one of which Isaiah spoke. And so he points us straight away, verse 4, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and then we are introduced 
to Jesus. It's amazing. You see what I'm saying? It connects things quickly, 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 like that. And then there's this affirmation from heaven in verse 11, where the voice of God says, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. And the very next, so in, like in eight verses, John is connect, uh, Mark has connected all those things. And then in verse 11, uh, for, verse 14, he focuses on the ministry of Jesus, and he makes it clear that what Jesus is coming to do is to bring a new kingdom. It's about the kingdom of God. It's about the dawning of a new age. And he says the appropriate response in verse 14 is, repent and believe the message. Repent and believe the gospel. And then the first eight chapters, if you read the first eight chapters, do that this week, you'll see one after the other, there are miracles that are recorded. One after the other. This message that um, we have been called to repent and believe in this message is followed by one sign and wonder after the other confirming this message. I said this in the prayer meeting this morning. Wherever Jesus went, he called people together, he taught them, and they were set free, and they were healed, and they were delivered. All that, those things happen simultaneously all the time. And the response in chapter 2 of the disciples is, we have never seen anything like this. And so I want to say that um, for me, as I have been reading and studying this, all these things are the introduction to the something else that Mark is trying to get us to see, the something else that Mark is pointing us to, and that it's explained clearly as he introduces the preaching ministry of Jesus. This is the central theme of, of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is the Son of God. What are you going to do about it? That's what Mark is saying. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the fullness of the Messiah. He's demonstrated this in, through his life. Repent and believe in this message of the good news of Jesus. And then simultaneously, second, alongside that is, what are you going to do to respond to him? This is who Jesus is. What are you going to do to respond this is Jesus's. What are you going to do to respond? The two going together. Repent, believe, and now how, is it, how are you going to live? How, how, are you going to, how are you going to take this message that you've heard that's transformed you? What are you going to do with this? And that's the, th- the two themes that I would like to explore over the next months as we go ahead. This is who Jesus is. We want to get to know him better. We want to understand him more perfectly. We want the Holy Spirit to reveal more and more and more and more of Jesus to us because out of the fullness of Christ in our own lives, we start to live. And we want the Christ to become increasingly full on the inside of us so we can live out in a full measure out of our lives. And then, how are we going to help others to respond to him? What are we going to do? How is, how is this church going to become increasingly missional, outward-focused? How are the guys at the university going to reach their contemporaries? How are the guys at school going to reach their friends? How are we going to reach our friends and family, those people in the workplace? I said to Callum yesterday, for me, the church is a bit like um, an old, you know those concertina things? What do you call them? Recordium. It goes out during the week, and we all do the ministry. We all do the stuff. So it's like, <gasps> we breathe out, we all do the ministry, do the stuff, and we come back together, and we sing together, and we get encouraged, and we worship God, and we're refreshed, and we get healed, and we get prayed for, and then 
We go out during the week and we do the stuff. We do the ministry. You and I get to do the stuff together. You and I get to do the stuff together. Week after week after week after week. Church is what happens from Saturday to Saturday. It includes Sunday, and it's very necessary that we come together, that we build each other up. You know what I want to say to you in conclusion? The world is going to do all that it can to discourage you, to tell you that you're useless, to tell you that you're not good enough. I want to say to you, the one place that you should come during the week to find out that God loves you, and that He thinks you're great, and that He's smiling upon you, and He's got a mission for your life, and He wants you to live with joy and fullness, the one place that you should find that is here. So that you get refreshed and you get courage and you feel strong and you can go and face the teachers at the King's School and you can go into the nurses' environment and face those people that give you a hard time every, every week and whatever other people do. And you can, through your life, you can live the gospel. And it does. It, you, 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 courage sometimes drains out of us as the week goes on, isn't it? And then we come back together and we hear from the Word and we hear what God is saying and the Holy Spirit ministers and we pray for the sick and we get strong and we go out again into the world. Go into all the world and preach the good news. So what I'm trying to say to you is this message of the Gospel is about you and me doing the stuff from Saturday to Saturday. And what we do on a Sunday, it's the half time. It's sucking on the oranges. It's getting a little encouragement from the coach saying, Arsene Wenger trying again and again and again to get Arsenal to do anything. Perhaps this will be the year that Arsenal does something. I don't know. But anyway, it's like Arsenal Wenger getting the, the players together and saying, yes, let's look at our strategy again. What are we going to do? How must we play differently? But we don't play only on a Sunday. We play from Saturday to Saturday. That's when the game happens. This is half time. It is. And so I want to encourage you with that as we go. This is half time. When we come together on Sundays, we worship. We get strength from the Word. We encourage each other. We pray for each other. And then we commission each other and say, go out into all the world this week and live the gospel and touch someone's life and get to do the stuff and then we come back together and we encourage each other. Amen? It's the beginning of the gospel.